What can I say? It's so good to be back at C3 Adelaide Hills with Pastor Bruce and Julie. means a lot to us, you know, with the, the, the friendship that has deepened through the years. You know when God puts something together, when you just start hanging out and things like Pastor Bruce said, things just start clicking. And so uh, we just love you guys. We so, we're so thankful for what you've done. And I, just, I can just see in both of you right now such an apostolic calling that God's going to continue to bring you into. There's just, there's just such a new opening and a, a, and a fresh anointing like you've never experienced. You're going to walk into arenas, and it's just like you're going to be clothed with something, a weight of God's increase in God's power and God's anointing like you've never felt before. You're going to walk into other countries and you're just going to know you're the right people at the right place at the right time. And you're going to both look at each other and you're going to say, we were made. We were created for this moment. That's going to happen. And so I just want to release that as a word into both of your lives. There's, a, there, there's an apostolic mantle that's being rested upon both of you. And not just for this arena, but to touch a world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So can we just give God a thank? Just, just thank him for that. Thank him for that. My goodness, my goodness, my time's limited. I always know that, especially in the first service. i got to move. i got to move. How many got their Bibles? Bible, iPad, smartphone, whatever you want to call it, hold it up. Wave it around. Make the devil mad. I want you to find Luke's gospel, chapter 6. Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Um, I'm going to read this in just a moment, but let me just preface. Let me preface some things because I think it's important. If, you know, everything we read in the Bible historically happened, but until we create a transfer within our own life that not only did this happen, but this is happening, it's only at that moment that what we read comes off the pages. It personalizes itself. And at that moment, it's allowed to speak into our life. As long as I relegate it to the past and simply see it and try to look at some concepts in it, it, it limits its ability to release the anointing or to release what God wants to say in the here and the now. So when we read this, not only did it happen, but it's happening. All these stories are stories of life. They're stories that we can put ourselves into, and this is one of them. Um, I found out that Pastor Bruce was preaching on shift, so I'm talking about stretch. He shift, I'm stretch. We can make a movie out of that. As John said, we can make a movie out of that one. So look at it with me. Look at it with me. Luke 6, uh, verse 6. Luke 6, 6. Now what happened on another Sabbath also, that he entered the synagogue and taught, a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. He knew their thoughts and Said to the man with a withered hand, Arise, stand here. He arose and stood. Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or evil, to save life or destroy? And then he looked around at them all and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. What's fascinating initially 
about this. And like I said, put yourself in it because this is so personal. He starts out by describing, he didn't have to, but he needed to, describing which hand was withered. He could have said, and there's another instance in the other gospel where it just says his hand, but in this particular one, he purposely calls attention to his right hand, his right hand. It didn't say it was dead, but it did say it was withered. The right hand has always been historically and biblically symbolic. It's always been that way. You shake with the right hand. If you had a head table with a speaker that was going to give a message and so on, he would always be seated to the right of the podium or lectern, whatever you might want to call that. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was seated at the right hand. Now, if you're left-handed today, don't uh, this will include you as well. But he was seated at the right hand of majesty on high. The right hand is always, sim- sim- always symbolized energy, strength, power, authority. It's always been symbolic. And it is in our life. You shake, you reach out. Years ago in the church world when somebody was accepted in a congregation, they would call it that they would reach out the right hand of fellowship. They would bring people in. So it's always been symbolic. And it says his right hand was withered. A lot of times in life, in the process of living, all of us, all of us, if not today, experience a withered right hand. We're not always where we should be. We might have a lack of energy, a lack of, of, uh, of, of passion. There might just be something that was there at one time that is not quite there today. It's not dead. It's withered. It's not the energy level, the excitement, uh, the, uh, the authority, whatever that might be, the, 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 the vitality, the strength, the enthusiasm of life. We find ourselves going through the motions We find ourselves just kind of uh, Christianity has become kind of bland to us. And we're just walking through the everyday in and outs of life. Life itself, marriage can become withered. Families can become withered. Jobs can become withered. Occupations can become withered. We just get up on Monday. We go through our routine. We come home at the end of the day. We have our little routine before bedtime. And life becomes kind of a rotisserie of routine. And when that happens, the excitement, the energy, the vitality of life begins to drain out. Are you with me so far? All of us fall into these categories. Nobody in here has never fallen, or you might be in it right now. We've all been there where it just gets dry. We know the even in whether it's our personal life, our business, our company, our whatever we do, it's just the motions we're going through. There's a lack of energy. There's a lack of excitement. I cannot. God did not create life to be bored. Boring. I was reading a, a comment given by um, a guy by the name of Norman Cousins. Norman Cousins, I won't get into all of his background, but he was extremely astute. He's the only individual that Yale University gave an honorary doctorate to. And he did all this research on the human anatomy and the human immune system 
and so on. He went to the top of his game in the 1980s, lived to be a, a well into his 90s, and he said there is no disease more lethal than that which that then the boredom that follows retirement. And I thought, you know, and when, when I say the word retirement, people think of an age. No, no, no. You can retire from church. You can retire from life. You can retire from marriage. All retirement is is a state of inactivity. That's all it is. I can be there and inactive. I can be in a relationship and be inactive. I can be in church and be inactive. All I become is a spectator and no longer a participant in anything. I lose my activity. And he said, there is no disease, no disease. This is a man that spent 10 years studying the human immune system and how it operates. There is no disease more lethal than the boredom that will follow a person that simply goes through the motions, that simply has inactivity in their life. They're there, but they're not really there. Are you with me so far? And that's what we have in this guy right here. We have an individual whose right hand is withered. What I love about the story, I love this, I love this. Jesus initiates it by calling attention to it. You'll never get, you and I will never get over anything until we recognize we got a problem. He has to call attention to it. As long as I believe that everything's perfect and everything's fine, I'm never going to change. Things have to be called attention to. I have to recognize that's me. As long as I hide behind a persona that is somebody else, that it's not really me, then the only person that I fool is myself. If you look at people that overcome things, they know AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, started by two guys, two buddies that were alcoholics that got together, that overcame it. They were Christians in New York City. They formed the thing back in the 1920s or 30s. One, one of the guys' name was Bob. I think it was Bob and John. I, don't quote me on that. But I know one of them's name was Bob. Not Dr. Bob, but Bob. And they started that thing, and the first thing were Christians. It's kind of morphed itself out of how, to, how they packaged it initially. But the first thing you had to do is recognize, I, I, I've got a problem, and I need a higher power. I need God in my life to solve this thing. There had to be a recognition. And until there's a recognition, nothing begins to, there's no revelation. Nothing begins to happen. Are you with me so far? So the first thing Jesus does, he calls attention to this guy. There's nobody in this auditorium that's perfect. All of us have a handicap. But my disabilities do not disqualify me in God. My difficulties do not disqualify me. In fact, there's something happens in the life of a human being when they recognize something. There's a shift, literally. Something actually happens when all of a sudden God puts his finger or somebody releases a word, or somebody says something, and I recognize, man, that's me. It's at that moment that God has put it, that he's exposed that area of my life. And until that moment happens, I just, I, I live under the, uh, I'm, I'm looking for a word, I can't find it, but I, but, but I live under the illusion that everything's fine, but the moment he puts his finger on that situation, it wakes me up. And it's at that time that my handicap at that part never becomes a disability. It changes things. There was a guy years ago, his name was Glenn. 
Glenn had a brother. His name was Floyd. Last name was Cunningham. Lived in the state of, of uh, Kansas. It was back in the 1930s, probably the end of the 20s, probably 20s or 30s. Uh, I, I know it wasn't too far beyond that point. Don't quote me on that. Don't look it up because all my stories are true. I've already Googled all of them. I know they're truths, and even if they're not true, they contain truth. And I discovered years ago, of course, that containing truth is greater than truth itself. No idea, Simon, what that means, but it makes me sound intelligent, so I keep saying it. But anyhow, their job was in the wintertime, they had a little one-room schoolhouse. And their job was to get there early. There was a little stove in there and light that stove to heat that school up before the rest of the kids got there. Well, they were doing it. It's wintertime. There was snow outside. Glenn and his brother Floyd got there, and they were lighting the fire. There was some fuel. And in the process of lighting it, the fuel got knocked over, and it ignited, and it blew up the stove, blew up the schoolhouse, blew up both boys outside into the snow. Floyd died. Glenn was burnt completely from the waist down. By the time they found, there's no near hospitals. They had to bring him home. The doctor was notified. He came and he examined Glenn and looked at, 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 his, at his mother and said, we have to amputate his legs. And she said, being a Christian, she said, no, you just can't do that. And he said, well, we, we, we probably have to. He's completely burnt from the waist down and every, every bone in his feet has have been broken. There's, there, there's there, 25% of all the bones in your body are in your foot. They're very integral. You can't really fix a foot. And so she said, doctor, do we have any, any, any time? Is there, is there a, a window? And he said, well, no more than five days. He said, the problem is if we don't do something, infection will set in. And then you get gangrene. And if that travels to his heart, if we don't, lose his legs, we're going to lose his life. So his mother got up every morning and she anointed his legs with oil. She prayed. She put oil all over him. On the fifth morning, when she was rubbing his legs, Glenn began to scream because feeling had returned. See, there's good pain and there's bad pain. That's good pain. Life had been restored. So she Got hold of the doctor. He came. He examined. He said, it's an absolute miracle. Absolute miracle. We don't have to amputate his legs. Well, about springtime came, and Glenn began to walk. He began to go through whatever type of physical therapy, which would be archaic back then if they had any. But he began to walk, and he developed a very odd walk because the bones inside of his feet, they just kind of healed any, any way they could. You can't set a foot. And so they just began to heal, and he was walking. I love this. You see, he had a handicap. Everybody's got a handicap. And nobody born perfect. There's nobody has a perfect life. Everybody has a, a disability in life, but they don't disqualify us. He's walking down this little town that he lived in in the state of Kansas, and he looked into a, a little window of a store, and he saw a trophy. And Glenn Cunningham got a vision for the future of his life. And he thought to himself, they saw that trophy. And he thought to himself, he said, I want to get a trophy someday. I'm going to be a runner. So he told that doctor that he's going to be a runner. And the doctor said, it's an impossibility, Glenn. 
It's a miracle you got your legs. It's a miracle you can walk, but you'll never run, especially successfully. In 1936, in Berlin, Germany, in the presence of Adolf Hitler, Glenn Cunningham became the fastest man in the world. Ran right into gold. Did the mile in four second, four minutes and two seconds, only beat by Roger Bannister in 1954 when he broke the barrier of the four-minute mile. Because there's something happens in the heart of a human being when they wake up to the fact they're not perfect. Something happens when I embrace my disability. It doesn't lower me. It sets into motion what I call the law. Are you with me? The law of overcompensation. When you know there's three strikes against you, you don't back off. You push harder. When you know you've got a disability, it actually works in favor of you. This is so, are you, are you hearing what I'm saying? It pushes you. You know that there's something working against you, so you overcome that something that's working against you. You push harder. You pray harder. You move harder. You do things. You, the, 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 uh, the thought has always been how fast would Glenn Cunningham have run if he never had the accident? And the answer is not near as fast. It was because of the disability, the acknowledgement of the disability, the embracing of the disability that he began to push himself beyond the limits of human imagination. He ran the most awkward run. He developed his own style. He's the only guy to this day that can run the second half of the mile faster than the first half of the mile. He had this awkward gait, this awkward run because of the way his feet and he overcame all the... Are you with me so far? Yeah. My God. Get excited. I hit somebody, but I can't hurt Simon. Now, you got to listen to this. That's why Jesus called attention to this guy. He called them out. There he is right there, a man. The right hand is withered. And he does the same thing, does embrace it. Don't run from the thing. And don't get scared of it. Look at the thing face to face and say, that's right, I have. And I'm going to do something about it now. I'm going to push this thing harder. I'm going to move beyond this disability. I'm going to let it propel me. I'm going to let it fuel me into my future. The second thing he did, look at this, look at this, look at this. The second thing he did, second thing he did. I love this. I love it. In, the, in, in this, in the um, uh, New King James, it says, um, in verse, uh, where is, oh, in verse 8, he said, arise and stand here. Other translation says, get up. One of them says, uh, uh, you know, the, the idea, when Jesus focused on this guy, he said, arise and stand. In other words, right, get above this thing. Rise above this thing. Okay, you've got it. Now stand up. Stand above it. He called recognition to it, but now he put responsibility on the individual. Get up and stand up. Get up. Get up. The Bible said, Re rejoice not against me, O my enemies. When I fall, I shall arise. Get up. You tell our kids when they were small, you know, they'd always have something wrong with them or cry or something. Our tagline was always, get over it. To this day, I got, my, I got six grandkids, and now my daughter just look at me. Get over it. You're not dead. It didn't hurt you. Get over it. Get over it. People need to hear. Get over it. It won't kill you. 
Get over it. Rise above it. And that's what he did. Rise above it. Everybody's got a past. Everybody's got situations. We live in such a touchy, feeling, emotional world today that people love to nurse all their hurts. And sometimes you got to just rise above it. Well, my mother, well, my father, well, my teacher, somebody looked at me wrong when I was six years old. Get over it. Dad wasn't there for all my games. Get over it. Are you with me? We have created a world that doesn't even work. We have created pressure on families that never existed 25 years ago. We have created personas where, where, where the world's concerned that was never there. I'm not going to live under the shadow of what somebody did or didn't do, said or didn't say, acknowledge or didn't acknowledge. There's somewhere you got to look at it and rise above it. There's somewhere in line you got to draw a line that saying, okay, they might not have been there. Maybe your dad, I don't want to make light of it, but maybe he walked out on you. Get over it. What are you going to do, let it poison you all your life until you pass that on to your children and you become your father incarnate to them and the thing just continues? No, somewhere you got you to end this thing and rise above it. There was a nine-year-old girl in Columbia, South America, 1964, John, she wrote a letter, stuck the letter in an envelope, sealed it, put no stamp on it, no stamp, no address. She wrote something, but there's no address, no address. Columbia, South America, mailed it, no stamp. No address. Jesus wrote something. Nine days later. No, six days later. Six, she was nine. Six days later, that letter arrived at 28 Hyde Gate Park, London. A secretary opened it up, looked at it, handed it to a 90-year-old man. He looked at it and smiled. His name was Winston Churchill. The outside of the envelope simply said to the greatest man in the world. And it went all the way to Winston Churchill. What most people don't know is Churchill's backstory. See, when Churchill was young, his father, Randolph, Sir Randolph Churchill, who was in Parliament, hated him. To say that Churchill's father disliked him is to get him off easy. They found out later that he had syphilis in his brain, so he was mentally disturbed. He hated his son. He considered his son completely uh, mentally ill-fit to do anything in life. At his youngest possible age, he shipped him to a boarding school, and there young Winston stayed for almost 18 years. He was never visited one time in all those years by his father. His father was in the same town. All he had to do was walk across the street and see his son. Never did it. Neither did his mother. 
Churchill used to write letters to his parents begging them to come and see him. They never came. Father never came. When he came out of that boarding school, it was one of the first times in his life his father even spoke to him. And he looked at him and said, you need to join the army. Winston got excited until his father continued the sentence. He said, because you're too stupid to do anything else with your life. Now, now, now if, if, if you, can you imagine being raised like that? I'm not talking about an absentee dad. I'm talking about a father that completely rejected his son and considered him mentally unfit to do anything in life and reminded him of it over and over and over and over and did it not only with words but action. But somehow, if you read the account of Winston Churchill, somehow he rose above it. He could have let that thing plague him, couldn't he? You'd have never, the world would have never heard of Winston Churchill. He could have let that thing dog his tracks. He could have let that rejection and that unvalidation of his father haunt him all of his life. But somehow he, in his heart, rose above it to such a degree that when his son was born, he named him in honor of his father. He rose above it. He rose above it. I don't think anybody has ever had a father as bad as Winston Churchill had. But he was able to rise above it. In life, you've got to rise above the difficulty. You've got to rise above it. I've done a lot of men's conferences all over the world, and I, I watch these young guys especially. They're like, I'm messed up. I mean, we look really messed up. But I tell them, I say, you've got to rise above it. You might never fix the past. You might never get the apology you're looking for. You might never find what you think you need, the validation, but you have to, in your own life, decide, I'm going to forgive, I'm going to rise above this thing, I'm going to go on, and I'm not going to be this way to the children that I bring into this world. I'm going to rise above. Are you with me? Are you, I'm going to rise above this thing. Jesus calls his attention to it, and then he looks at him, and he tells him to get up, rise above it. And then I love how he brings this thing to a conclusion. He looks at him then. At the very end, and he says four words. He said, stretch out your hand. You see, you and I will never be everything God wants us to be without stretching. You, gotta, you, you, you embrace things. You rise above things. But in the midst of all that, I can't end there. I've got to do something. There's an entire humanity I can touch. I've got to give what I have away. I've got to reach out to somebody else. There was a young boy years ago that his mother was going to bring him to school. And then she had to go to work. And so she was in the garage. Garage door was open. She was honking her horn. The little guy was late and he ran through the house and jumped in the car. And she brought him to school. She went to work. At the end of the day, she picked him up and came home. And when she came home and the garage door opened up, she noticed that there was water all over the garage floor, and then she recognized what had happened. Evidently, when the little guy came through the garage, there was a freezer in there, and he kicked the plug accidentally out of the wall, and it was during the warm season, and that thing defrosted. There was $400 worth of meat in that freezer, and it was all thawed out. Now, how many know when you thought, well, you, you can't, you can't re-freeze Meat. You can talk. You can't refreeze meat. So she called up her husband. He was a pastor. She told him what happened. She said, what are we going to do? He said, we're going to have a barbecue. 
said, I'll come home early, fire up the grill, get some of the neighbor's grill. We're going to cook everything. Tell the neighbors they don't have to eat tonight. Get all the relatives. So he cooked up all the $400 worth of meat, fed everybody. They were happy. He wasn't. <laughs> he had to refill that thing. Laying there in bed 10 o'clock at night, reflecting on the day. You know, any decent preacher is going to try to find a message in something. <laughs> he laid there and he said, God, he said, there's got to be a message in this somewhere. And he said, God spoke to me. Right there, right there. Right there. You want to know what he said? It's a good, it's good, it's good. I want to, I want to make sure you want to know before I tell you, because if you don't want to know, I'm not going to tell you. I'll tell the next service, because they might be more. Anyhow, so he lay in there, $400 of the meat gone. He's going to fill that thing up now. And he said, God, there's got to be a message in this summer. He said, God spoke to me. Spoke, 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 spoke. You want to know what he said? Yeah. It's good. I mean, it really is. You'll, it's worthy of a... Of a, of a tweet on this thing. I mean, it's, it's good. I like hearing it. I'm going to tell you in just a moment. The best thing to eat in Texas is barbecue. We're noted for it. Other states claim their fame to it, but we perfected it. If you go into a real place, I mean, that really serves barbecue, you, there's no utensils. They wrap it up in butcher paper. You buy it by the pound. They are smoking that stuff for hours at a time. You get barbecue sauce, and you open that thing up, and you pour the barbecue sauce over it. You have two towels. You have a wet one and a dry one because the barbecue sauce is going to run down your face. So you initially wipe it off with the wet, and then you finish it off with the dry. It changes things when you eat with your hands. And people that go to a get Texas barbecue go hungry. They don't care that it's running down their face. They don't care what they look like. They don't care that it's dripping on their clothes because they got old clothes on. They just want to eat because they're hungry. I'm going to tell you what God told this guy, but I want you to be like you're bellying up to eat Texas barbecue. You don't care if it runs down your face. You don't care if it gets a little sloppy because you've got two towels, a wet one and a dry one. So lay in there. He said, God, there's got to be a message in this somewhere. I just served $400 worth of meat. And now i got to refill a freezer. And the Lord spoke to me. Oh, yeah. How many know God talks? God spoke to him. I'm going to tell you. So I discovered years ago that every once in a while I <laughs> say things that are profound. But I also found out that when I say something that's profound, nobody knows it. So I decided to let people know in advance <laughs> that what I'm about to say is profound. So then when I say it, they'll say, wow, that was profound. That helps me. Laying there in bed, $400 of meat gone. Now you spend another 400 
God, there's got to be a message in this. God spoke to me. I'm going to tell you what he said. I'm just coming. I feel, I definitely feel, I feel it now. I feel that sauce come, that barbecue sauce is coming. It's going to drip right down your face. It's going here it is. It's, it's ready. I, I feel, I can sense it. Here it is. You ready? I got to get in form. Got to get in form. Life is perishable. If you don't give it away, the day will come where you have to throw it away. You can't save it. You can't save it. Life as we know, our life, your life, it's a, this, this, it's a, this thing, it's a perishable commodity. There's no deep freeze. You're already thawed out. None of you are frozen. You got to give it away. Stretch out your hand. When God does something in you, he does it for only one reason, to do something through you, to touch a world, to reach somebody else. Stretch out your hand. Don't hang on to it because your life and my life is a perishable commodity. I can't save it. I can't say I'll do this maybe five years from now. Pastor Bruce, I, you know, I need to get over all of these things, and then I'll do it. I say, just do it now, and you'll get over it. Just start doing something. In the process of doing something, you start getting over something. In the process of reaching, you start getting healed. In the process of giving your life away, you start losing your life. When you lose your life, you find God's life inside of you. That's the only way it works. I'm not going to, if I try to sit, I don't need a psychiatrist and sit for hundreds of hours going through my problem. What I need to do is find somebody I can give my life to. And as I give out of what I've got, I begin to discover that I don't have any problems anymore. Because the more I give out, the more God puts something in me and I get over things. And then by getting over things, I begin to forget about me. Because the biggest thing, the worst thing you can have is spend all your life dwelling on you, the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. You got to get over the thing and reach out to somebody else, and pretty soon you forget yourself. And when you forget yourself, you can give yourself. And when you give yourself, you find yourself. Amen. Stand up with me. Stand up with me. Stand up with me. Stand up. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. Just bow your heads with me right now. Bow your heads and open your heart. You might be in here this morning. And, and, and saying on the inside, my God, I need to, I need to connect. I, 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 wanna, I, wanna, I, I want to connect uh, to a greater life, a bigger life. But the first way you do that is to connect your life with the person of Jesus Christ. So if you're in here and you've never really committed yourself to Jesus, maybe you've never prayed that simple prayer and reached out and asked him to come into your life, or maybe you've done that, but you've walked away from him. And you're here today, and you say, I just, I just feel a disconnect with God, a complete disconnect. I'm, I'm here, I'm hearing what you're saying, but there's not a connection with the person of Jesus Christ, with your head bowed and your heart open. I'm going to count to three. When I say three, that's your signal to God to just, I just ask, I, what I want you to do is just slip your hand up. We're going to pray with you right where you are. Just slip it up. But get your hand ready right now. Get your, I want you to think about it. 
You might be disconnected with him. Get ready to raise your hand. One. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation, not yesterday, not tomorrow. Whatever you're going to do for God, you've got to do it right now. You and I have this moment. This moment, this moment won't always be this moment. We have no guarantee of tomorrow, but we've got right now. Get ready to raise your hand. Two, Jesus did not die in a closet. He died on a hill. He didn't hide his death. He showed it for the world to see it. I'm not going to hide my willingness to come to him. I want to show my willingness to come to him. If you're away from God, if you feel a disconnect from him, if you've never connected or maybe you've disconnected from the person of Christ and you want to come back, this is your signal right here. We're going to pray with you right where you are. Here we go. Get ready to raise your hand. Get ready. Get ready. Across the auditorium. Here we go. Three. If that's you, just put your hand up. Just slip it up right where you are. Let me just slip it up and hold it up. I'm going to look across the auditorium, and if that's you, just don't let this moment pass you by. Just slip your hand up, anyone at all. Just hold it up. Say, that's me. I'm disconnected from God. I need to be connected. Just hold your hand up. Just hold it up. Praise God. Lord Jesus, we just thank you. We bless you for everyone here at C3 Adelaide Hills for your goodness that you're displaying upon everyone in this church, and I pray that this message will burn and resonate in every heart and from this day we'll move forward, stretching our life, reaching out with whatever you've placed within us to touch, to lift, to help, and to heal the world that's all around us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Give the Lord a hand clap.